We're going to be in Matthew's Gospel, so if you have a Bible, please open to Matthew. And, and if you would like a Bible, there's some at the back table there. It's also um, just, there's a connect card there. Uh, you could drop that in the, the box. And, but yeah, we're, we're continuing this service where if you, um, or the series that we've called um, The Story That Stills Our Fears. And we've been looking at all the different aspects of the, the Christmas story and the ways that it speaks um, to a lot of these contemporary fears that we have. And if you remember, each of these candles has um, traditionally represented just a different aspect of this Christmas story. Um, hope, peace, joy, and love. Love is the most um, recent candle that we lit. Pablo, tell me if I need to like move around too, if uh, I'm standing too close to a speaker. Um, and yeah, so, so love is the, the candle, and we've been kind of following those themes each week. Uh, this week we are looking at, uh, I actually think it's just this really fascinating concept of love because maybe I'm reading my own bias into this a little bit, but I grew up as a, a preacher's kid. Like I was in church all the time for everything. And growing up in the church, I think as a, at a young age, I kind of knew that love was like at the center of Christianity, right? And I think the songs that we sing, uh, you know, yes, Jesus loves me. Uh, John 3.16, it's like the only Bible verse you ever know as a kid. For God so loved the world, uh, Jesus loves the little children. That's one that uh, you sing a lot as a kid if you grow up in and around the church. Uh, and I think for some reason, maybe it's because it's such a familiar concept when you're young, but as I got older, I, I kind of moved away from this conviction that like, I knew love was at the center of the Christian faith, and then I thought it was actually maybe kind of basic, and I wanted to like graduate to, you know, if love was like Christianity 101, I wanted to move on to 201 or 301, like, let's talk more about the incarnation, let's talk about heaven, you know, and the, the, the time-space continuum of, of the new heaven and the new earth, right? And I think just at this stage of my life, I'm coming back as I'm reading scriptures, seeing love is the, at the heart of everything that God does. And today, we are going to observe love in this Christmas story, and we're going to look at it in, I think, an unsuspecting place. Um, we have looked at different characters and different parts of the Christmas story, and this, this last snapshot that we're going to look at is a character that um, we haven't spent much time looking at him yet, and it's really, it's a character in the story that, that nobody spends uh, much time with, and that is Joseph. Uh, Joseph just kind of fades into the background of the Christmas story. He's often excluded. If you think of these, like, the classical paintings of, of the infant Jesus, it's like Jesus and Mary, right? Joseph doesn't get much love. He's this afterthought so often, even in our, our cursing. It's Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, right? The poor guy's last in everything. Um, it's a bad joke. Jack rolled his eyes at me. <laughs> so we're going to look at this passage in Matthew chapter 1. Um, if you would open to this, I'm going to read starting in verse 18, and we're going to look at a powerful portrayal of what love is. And, and we're going to see in this story of just this quiet, sacrificial love um, that I hope you will see that it actually changed the world forever. So I'm going to read um, starting 18, and then I'm going to kind of stop and start as we move through this. So um, Matthew 1, 18 says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit, right? This is what we looked at last week, the story of, of, of this divine conception of Mary by the Holy Spirit. Uh, then it says, verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law 
and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So pausing here, this story at this point I think is pretty self-explanatory because I think a lot of us might respond in similar ways. If we were engaged to be married and we found out our fiancé was pregnant and, you know, Jerry Springer or Mari Povich, if you grew up with any of that, they tell you you are not the father, right? I think that would be a deal breaker for most people. For a lot of people, like, bad teeth is a deal breaker. Like, my fiancé becoming pregnant and it's this mysterious circumstance, like, that's definitely a deal breaker. And so, Joseph has to deal, okay, what do we do with this? So under Jewish custom, it's a little bit different than our engagement. Um, This betrothal, being pledged to be married under Jewish custom, um, it's kind of like halfway between, um, you know, just starting this arrangement process and actually being married. But there was some legal agreement that they'd already entered into. Um, They had made these prenuptial agreements about um, how this was going to play out between families. And they could only at this point be separated by a formal process of divorce. So Joseph couldn't just walk away um, because he thought Mary was unfaithful, but we enter into formal divorce here. So Mary and her pregnancy very clearly to Joseph said to him and to the world that Mary was unfaithful. She was an adulterer, right? Which according to Jewish law was actually punishable by death and, and death by stoning. So this was safe to say a very, very serious issue. So we pick it up again in verse 19, where it says this, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. I actually think I already read verse 19. But yes, he had had in mind to divorce her quietly. I think it's interesting because Joseph, he's already thinking graciously about this, right? He wanted to, to love Mary and to support her beyond what the law required of him. So he wanted to divorce her quietly. It was the most humane of all of the options that would happen. And then verse 20, this is what we see. After he had considered this, the the divorce option, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph was clearly filled with fear, right? And it's a phrase we've actually looked at every single week throughout this series. Uh, We've heard the angel say, do not be afraid, right? And what's different about the story we're looking at today is, is that the fear typically had been because the angel himself or itself was terrifying, but Joseph is just having a dream about the angel, and, and what is terrifying to him is that he has to enter into this unknown situation. Like, talk about life not going according to plan. Okay, we're about to be married, and then she tells you, I'm pregnant, you're not the dad, right? And the angel says, don't be guided by that fear. Listen to me. You should marry her because the child that she's carrying is from God. And so Joseph has this very palpable fear that the angel is speaking to. And part of it is, I think, a matter of whether or not Joseph would be dragged down with Mary. He's probably looking at this situation, her sh- the potential, the, sh- the shame and the disgrace that's going to be attached to her forever. He's looking at this like, am I going to be attached to that also? Am I going to be hooked up to this and brought down with her? You know, I think it's funny we, we do this often even in, in modern times where, you know, if somebody 
Um, if they're married recently and you hear like, oh, they're expecting a baby. I mean, how, how, tell me the truth. You're doing the math, right? You're like, okay, they're married in December and you're counting backwards the months, right? That, so it's going to be known that Mary was unfaithful and that she was going to be this public disgrace. She was likely going to be rejected by the entire community and possibly even her family. And then in contrast, Joseph, it says in verse 19, he was this man that was faithful to the law. Like he was a good religious guy who kept all the rules. Why would he want to ruin his reputation by attaching himself to this disgraced woman? Like these are the the questions that he's wrestling with. Um, Okay, full disclosure, I haven't read this book or even finished the film, but Alex and I started watching Where the Crawdads Sing. Has anybody seen that? So, okay, I have no idea. I could, this could be like horribly misrepresentative of where the story goes, but at the part that we've gotten to in the story, um, the main character is this woman, Kaya, who she has grown up um, alone in, in this marsh part of North Carolina. And, and she's this odd, quiet, mysterious woman that um, she's called the Marsh Girl. Nobody refers to her by her name. She's called the Marsh Girl. And there's this guy, Tate, who comes along, who falls in love with her. And he's this intelligent, handsome character. And he has these dreams of getting out of this small town and going on to college, right? They keep talking about him going to Chapel Hill. And, and his father warns him. And he says, if you are seen around this girl, people talk around here. If you are seen with her, she has a bad reputation. She's an outsider. And and just by attaching yourself to her, by being associated with her, you are going to be brought down too. So he warns her, don't get too close to her because she could derail your whole plans to get out of this place. Right? I think it's just so much in our human instinct that ancient and modern that, that we have this reputation that we're thinking about, okay, I've got this trajectory and this person could really hinder that. So Joseph has this choice to make. And he's leaning towards divorce. divorce. And in verse 22, I'll pick up the text again. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded, what had the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. And I want you to think about this. This is something that struck me that is so significant in this story, in this moment of history, really. um, To think about how high the stakes are here. So God's plan to send his Savior, to send this Messiah to rescue us, to rescue all of creation, redeem all things. It actually, at this point, comes down to this man, Joseph. And this man who had to trust God and really had to take this huge leap of faith because of a dream that he had where he was visited by an angel. Like, I don't know how palpable that dream was. Um, I don't know about you, but if I have a dream, the first thing I'm doing is like dismissing it, right? I'm, I'm writing it off as like, what did I eat that my chemicals were firing? But he has this decision to make because an angel visited him in a dream. And to think about how significant this is. Joseph's decision to to love Mary and to receive Mary and and to accept Jesus and really to adopt him as his son was critical for the prophecies of the Messiah. Because if you actually, if you have a physical Bible there, you can see in the pages before that Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy, right? It's just this list of names um, tracing this lineage from Joseph all the way back to Abraham. And very importantly, Joseph is connected to the King David. And the Messiah's prophecy, the prophecies of the Messiah were always that he was going to come from David's line. 
So Joseph was part of David's line. The Messiah must come from King David's line. So if Joseph actually rejects Mary at this point, Jesus is not his son, and he is not a descendant of David. Like, there's so much that hinges on this point. If Mary and Joseph are to be wed, Joseph receives Jesus fully as his son. There's no such thing in this world as, like, second-class sons. Like, either you're adopted and you're a son, or you're not a son. And so Jesus, at this point, because of Joseph's move to accept Mary, Jesus becomes grafted into this line of David, and which means all of those prophetic words about this Messiah coming from the line of David were going to be fulfilled. And just to zoom out, just to think about how remarkable this is, that God's plan for his Messiah, for the Savior, was dependent on the response of this young Jewish man to take this risk and to accept Mary with all of the, the shame and all of the disgrace that's associated with it. And I think this is incredibly profound insight into the heart and the nature and the character of our God. That his plan for salvation would, would come down to this, um, many, many different hinges throughout history that God was guiding, but that this particular point, um, it would come down to these two people um, dealing with what everybody thought was just infidelity and an illegitimate child, right? That, that God would take on flesh and become human, like that right there is radical enough. But to come into this particular family, in this situation, these humble means that they were, they were working class, blue collar at best people. Um, he was born into this, you know, feeding trough of animals, right? And, and a mother with, as far as the outside world can see, with this questionable morality. Like it just, when you think about all the layers, that that was the setting that God chose to enter into the world through that plot line. Like it is a shocking plot line throughout this Christmas story. And I think it is a picture of God's radical, sacrificial love for us. Like what we see in Joseph. Actually, instead of running away from the mess, he moves to Mary. He receives her. And I just think that's so true to the nature of God. That instead of, of running away and, and just abandoning his people, <clears throat> excuse me, he jumps right into the mess with us, right? That is the name of this child, Emmanuel, God with us. And I think all throughout this story here in Matthew and all throughout the Christmas story, there are just these echoes of God's nature and God's love all throughout. And I just want to make two more observations about the kind of love of God that we get a glimpse of in this story. And we see that it is a love that is undeserved, and we also see that it is a love that is transformational. So to say that it is a love that's undeserved... As we saw Joseph, right, he had every, every legal right, um, and, and it was even, you could say, it was the morally appropriate thing to do to divorce Mary at this point. But he responded to her kindly at first to saying, I want to divorce her quietly, but then it goes even farther. In verse 24, we read, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. Right? That is this beautiful picture of love that goes beyond the minimum requirements, and isn't this how God always deals with us? God always deals with us with, with mercy and gentleness time and time again because that is the nature of his love. God keeps no record of our wrongs. That's what 1 Corinthians says in the famous chapter all about love. It keeps no record of wrongs. Time and time again, God shows mercy to a people who, did, who do not deserve that mercy. And that is what makes God's love so radical, is that it is rooted in his character, not ours, 
right? It is based on his goodness. It's based in, on his work. It's not based on our worthiness. God's love is freely given to that. And, and actually, more, more than just freely given, it's actually the opposite of what we deserve. That we do not deserve mercy, but that is what we get. And it's simply because he is loving. It's not because we have to do anything special. And, and it just that, that contrast, that switch, I think is so beautiful. And um, we're getting hints of that here in this passage with, with Joseph. Um, there's a well-known British author, Francis Spuford, who wrote this book called Unapologetic. I think it's this, this awesome book, maybe 10 years old ago or so. Um, and he, he's talking about defining these terms, right? And he says, mercy, let's define that. Mercy is getting something kind instead of the sensible consequences of an action. It's getting something kind instead of the, the things which you would expect, right? That is mercy. That it's just this simple instead of exchange. And that, that phrase instead of is something that... Um, it's maybe a couple years ago now that I first stumbled upon reading um, Isaiah chapter 55. That it's a passage we actually spent a lot of time together with, um, just in the kind of praying, discerning period of, of launching this church. And it's this whole passage. Read it if you haven't read Isaiah 55 ever or in a long time. There are just so many deep, beautiful images of God's mercy and God's grace. Um, and at the very end of Isaiah 55, um, after it talks about his ways are not like our ways. His, his way is mercy and our way is judgment, right? It says it's a really interesting contrast where we, we want to give people what they deserve, but God wants to be merciful for people. And at the very end, this, in verse 13, Isaiah 55, 13, it says, Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. And it's just this really interesting mention where it just, just says, instead of this bad thing, instead of these thorns, instead of these unproductive bushes, beautiful things, juniper, myrtle, will grow instead. And I just think that, that phrase, instead of, is so indicative of who God is and his love. And I've come to this conclusion in my marriage that there are times when I screw up, and, and not to undersell, like, like, that's a lot, okay? It's not just like, oh, once in a blue move. It's like, no, regularly, in small ways, but large ways, like times when I screw up. There, there's times where, and, and we probably have experienced something like this, where, where you receive, like that, that Francis Spuford quote, where you receive just the sensible consequences of your action. And sometimes when you receive, like, an eye for an eye, and it's, it's fair, right? But it kind of stinks, because it reminds you of, like, yeah, I deserve that, but yeah, I was in the wrong, and that kind of st really stings that I, I, I'm being told about my, you know, my shortcomings. And then there's times where we receive mercy instead of what we deserve. Like, do you know that feeling when you know I've screwed up royally, and, and I get something totally the opposite of what I deserve? And I've come to learn that that is just the most, one of the most powerful human experiences and, and emotions that I think I've ever felt. It's just knowing that, that I, everything that I did, it deserves something bad, but when my wife or whoever it is gives me something good instead and responds with forgiveness and gentleness, like, that cuts deep in a really, really good way. It's like this, like, wow, okay, thank you. And I actually think what's interesting is when we receive mercy like that, um, I think contrary to what we might think that, oh, well, 
should we just keep failing again, knowing that uh, this person is just going to forgive me, that they're very gracious, they're forgiving, right? I actually think mercy is an incredibly powerful motivation for change. Like, guilt and, and retribution uh, might impact our behavior, might cause us to change a little bit for a, for a short period of time, but actually that deep change comes from receiving this love and grace and forgiveness, and we say, like, yeah, I want to respond appropriately to that. I, I want to honor that love and respond in a way that, that I, I am changing my behavior. I am improving, not out of guilt or shame, but just out of love. And it is just, that is such a, a more powerful motivator for change is love. And I think we see this in, in the story here and all throughout the scriptures that, that God's love, it transforms people. And I just, I want to look, make that last comment here that, that just look at this transformative power of love. And so in our story, we saw that Joseph, he moved, responded to the, what the angel said, right? He moves away from this place of fear. Um, and, and as the angel speaks to him and, you know, um, marry this woman, ac- accept her, love her. And he goes to this place of, of peace and confidence, even though the circumstances don't change. He's about to enter into a, a whole world of drama um, with Mary in this pregnancy. And, and he is stepping into this potential shame. He's stepping into potential slander from others. He's going to receive this child, and he is totally okay with it. Like Joseph, all throughout the scriptures, when you read Joseph, he is just this picture of just quiet, calm confidence. Actually, he's never recorded saying words, right? He is a man of actions. I feel like that's somebody that I want to model my life after. Andrew, just talk less and do stuff more, okay? Like, oh, I can do that. That's actually a really good motivation or a good picture for me. And Joseph, he just does these things because that's what love is. Like, love does things. Love isn't talk. Love is action. He, he accepts Mary and, and marries her, and he's willing to take on all of the, the risk and the disgrace because she is worth it. And if you remember, we've been calling this series The Story That Stills Our Fears. And then there's a, a passage that, I mean, if you want to turn to it, it's towards the back of your New Testament, but I want to read a little bit from uh, 1 John chapter 4. And there's a passage that, that links these ideas of, of love and fear together that it, it always has struck me as so fascinating. But uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, I'm going to come back to that chapter a little bit, but if I were to ask you, you know, what is the opposite of fear, you would probably not say love, right? Those, t- those things don't typically seem like opposite sides of, of the scale, and if I were to say, you know, what's the opposite of love, you wouldn't say fear. Like they, I, I don't know, like that passage, they've always seemed disconnected to me, and yet here in, in 1 John, they are linked together. It says, perfect love drives out fear, and I think the key to this is, uh, so that was verse 18, right before it, verse 17 um, it's talking about, uh, it says, verse 17, we will have confidence on the day of judgment. And it says that because fear has to do with punishment, right? And so we're talking about righteousness, obeying the law, punishment for not keeping the law, judgment, all that. And so I hope you're tracking with me that First John chapter 4, it's, it's telling us something so profound about human nature. It's just saying love casts out fear. Love drives out fear because God loves you so much that he died for you, for the atonement of your sin. He accepts you as you are in your sin and shame. And therefore, as Romans 8, uh, chapter, chapter 8, 31, that we uh, 
I, I referenced it earlier in the prayer, that God is for us, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? There's no judgment against us, for we have the forgiveness of sins that is based in Christ's sacrifice. And what comes of that is just this confidence and this rest that enters into our life. So I said that in Romans chapter 8, it says, um, what shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then Paul goes on to say, what shall separate us, separate us from the love of Christ? Should trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He's saying, no, none of these things can separate us from God's love. And this famous verse 37, it says, no, in all these things, we were more than conquerors through him who loved us. Did you catch that? That the reason that we can overcome and, and be more than conquerors of all these things is because God loves us. And when we have that love, it is transformative in our lives. I mean, think about this. Whatever is causing you fear in life right now, your finances, future, family, whatever it is, if you were to imagine just like the worst case scenario, and it's probably not like a fun, hey, it's Sunday morning, really, you're asking me to do like a thought exercise of like, imagine the worst thing that could happen in your life right now. Okay, so um, that might be, you know, better for the therapist couch than Sunday morning. But, but to think about, to think about God's love, right? If you have God's love, which you cannot earn and you cannot lose, is there anything more in the world you need? I mean, your fears, your worst fear coming true would genuinely be awful. It would be horrendous. It would be life-altering and devastating. But the promise that even a life of suffering and disappointment and even death can end up in eternal joy and peace and health in the presence of God in heaven, like, that is the promise that, it, that undergirds all of our fears. And I don't think it's just a matter of like, hey, you know, white-knuckle it until you die and go to heaven, because I actually think when you look at this passage in 1 John chapter 4, um, it is very relevant now. In, in chapter 4, verse 12, it says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And then verse 16, it says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. So it's this remarkable promise that God is more fully present in, in this church community and wherever we are. God is more fully present in us when we are actively loving one another. And the more that we experience love, giving and receiving, right, the more it just causes our fears to dissipate. Like if you've ever had this cup that you fill to the brim with water and you're just like, I need a little bit of ice and you just drop a couple ice cubes, like it pushes it over, right? It just, it has to go somewhere. And I think the more that we are filled with love, fear is just that thing that naturally goes away. And I hope that as we look at these passages, you can start to see all the ways that God's love transform us. Like Matthew 1 talks about love can, like Joseph and Mary can absorb her shame. It could take on her shame and receive her. Um, John chapter, 1 John chapter 4 talks about love casting out fears. And, and I think just to simply say when the love of God invades our lives, it just moves us beyond ourselves and into these places of, of deep sacrifice and deep love for others. Like think about this as you are secure in God's love. You are more free to take risk. You become more vulnerable in your friendships, knowing that whatever that person says or doesn't say to me does not define me. That is not the most important thing about me because God has already said that I am beautiful and I am worthy and he's accepted me, right? We can become secure and confident individuals 
because we aren't as concerned about getting the approval from others because we already have the approval of God in Jesus. It causes us to become more courageous. Like Joseph, we enter into risky situations, and we aren't so concerned about what this does with our social credibility or, or climbing whatever ladder we're, we are on, because what we care about is not what the world thinks about us, but what God thinks about us. And so we end up being a people that use our words and our actions and our time and our money to, to serve God and obey God. We, we love and we welcome people that might be otherwise rejected. We're not caring so much whether this tarnishes our reputation because that's the kind of love that we see in Joseph. That's the kind of love that we see in God. And that's the kind of love especially that we see in Jesus. The Bible gives us this picture of that love in John 15. He says, there's no greater picture of that love than one who lays down his life for somebody else. And that is precisely what we see in Jesus as he died on the cross. The, the cross wasn't this merely transactional payment, but it was the pinnacle of love. You might be familiar with this verse in Romans 5, 8, um, which we usually remember as, at least for me, I always remember, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But that verse actually begins by saying, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is his love that demonstrates, or it is the cross that demonstrates that love, right? That is the ultimate picture of God's love for us. And love, it's this, it's this funny thing. It can be cheesy sometimes. It can be easy to dismiss as childish and elementary, and it's something that I think no scientist or, or biologist would ever say um, is uh, verifiable. You can't find love. You can't put it under a microscope. It's not necessary for, for a biological creature to function. But no one who has ever experienced love would say it's meaningless, right? No one who has ever tasted and experienced the love of God or the love of another person would say, yeah, that's just random synapses firing and chemicals and it's meaningless, like, I think we know it when we see it. We see it in Joseph. We see it in Jesus. We see that the sacrificial love is so healing and it is so transformational. And I think the more that we see that this love comes without strings, it's without uh, fine prints, that, that's, that's the stuff that just gets deep into our hearts and that's what we find in what Jesus has done for us. And maybe this Christmas, maybe this morning or, or in the next week that... Um, that you would start to receive and to experience this love in a different way. Maybe even now thinking as we, we're going to gather at this table in a second and just to think about as you receive these elements, think about what does it look like for me to just receive God's love that I might be shaped by that, that then I can be the one who, who gives that sacrificially to others. And, and let me just pray that for us before I invite us to the table here. Um, Jesus, I, I would ask as we receive... Um, the, the sacraments of your body and your blood, that would you, would you show us what we already have in you, that there is not more to be done or, or earned or um, strained for or strived after, but we already have this love in you, and if you are for us, who can be against us? Um, would you give us maybe some more freedom as we receive that love? Would you give us some more courage? Would you give us more confidence and hope, maybe peace, um, with, with rough circumstances that are going on, whatever it is, would you just give us a small taste of the love that we have in you? And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.